Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of The Whispering Box Mystery by John Blaine. Volume 8 Chapter 18 The Crisis Dr. Kepner's laboratory was crowded with people. In addition to the spindrift scientists, Rick, Scotty, Gizmo, and Steve Ames, there were Fanning, Terhune, and three of Steve's men. Kepner had the floor. Things happened so rapidly, there was no time even to get our thoughts straightened out. First of all, the man who claimed he was Dr. Bertona arrived. I didn't doubt he was Dr. Bertona. You gotta remember, I hadn't seen the real Dr. Bertona for many years, and the only characteristic I remember distinctly were his eyes. A family inheritance, Dr. Bertona said. Yes. To our questions, he replied merely that his story could wait and that Steve Ames already had been notified, and the men who kidnapped him would be picked up shortly. He said the important thing was the counter-weapon, that it had to be completed immediately, because he had overheard talk of a new attempt on a major secret by the gang. He didn't know the nature of the secret. He demanded to know what had been accomplished. We told him, Harson Brandt said ruefully. We didn't suspect he might be an imposter. His questions were those the real Dr. Bertona might have asked. He even suggested procedures that we might have followed, and his suggestions were very sound. Then, while we were checking one of his suggestions against our diagrams, he asked to be excused for a moment and walked out. He didn't return. Steve Ames said, Well, we know now that your fake scientist won't be back. He got the information he was after. Rick said uneasily, Thanks to me. If I'd only not insisted on taking the right fork, we would have got back in time to head off the imposter. How did he know you hadn't told someone about the man with the sunglasses? Scotty demanded. He couldn't know, Steve answered. He took a chance. He was probably prepared in case he was recognized. He could have pulled a gun, tied up everyone in the lab, and walked back out again without being stopped. Pete Davis, who had been assigned to guard the building, shifted uncomfortably, then spoke up in his defense. He fit the description, and he had a wallet full of identification cards and apocryphal letters, including the one about reporting here. Why should we have doubted he was Bertona? Never mind, Pete, Steve said. I'm not blaming you. The only thing you might have done was to call me. He told me he'd already talked to you, Davis said sheepishly. I believed him. He was very plausible, Kepner agreed. Rick, we haven't heard all your story yet. I'll make it short, Rick said. As soon as I got a good look at Dr. Bertona, things made sense. You remember we couldn't figure out why the boss had wanted to kidnap Scotty and me? It was because we had seen him with nails the day they first made a try. That was the day they mistook me for Dad. 
After that, they had to get to us because we had seen the boss. He was planning to impersonate Dr. Bertona, and he couldn't do that as long as we were around the lab. Exactly. Dr. Bertona's ankles and one of his hands had been bandaged. Now he plucked at one of the bandages, obviously ill at ease. I can corroborate Rick's deduction because the gang leader admitted as much to me. He paused, reluctant to proceed. I dislike having to tell you this, but there's no alternative. The leader is my cousin. His name is John Goss. He inherited the peculiarities of eye coloring just as I did. The group in the laboratory stared at the scientist. It was because of the relationship he succeeded in getting me away from the plane at Pittsburgh. I knew his reputation. I knew he had served a prison sentence for embezzlement. However, I had no reason to suspect he was involved in the case for which I was flying to Washington. In fact, even I did not know the reason for my coming here. I knew only that Dr. Kempner had requested me to come on a confidential mission for the government. My cousin talked a great deal, Bertona continued. He even outlined his plans in a general way. He said he was working against time because the government was bound to have a counterweapon shortly. When the time limit expired, he said he'd be ready. He has a foolproof route for getting out of the country. He didn't tell me the route, of course. Once over the border or out to sea or whatever he contemplates, he will be met by representatives of foreign industrialists to whom he plans to sell his stolen secrets. On the proceeds from the sale, he and his men will live in comfort for the rest of their days, probably in some other country. Surely he wouldn't dare return here. Industrialists, Hartson Brandt repeated. That answers one question. We're not dealing with agents of some other nation, but with a group working for their own interests. Steve Ames spoke up. It answers that question, but it brings up new ones. Dr. Bertona, how did your cousin know what plane you were coming in on? How did he know you were coming at all? Bertona shrugged. I cannot answer that. I'm afraid he didn't tell me. Someone of the organization is evidently working for Goss, Kempner said slowly. Steve's sharp eyes went from one face to another. That's the only possible answer. Let's find out who that person is. Rick, when you called up Dr. Kempner, answered the phone, right? That's right. Dr. Kempner, who else has answered the phone this evening? Kempner looked puzzled. I'm sure I don't remember. Anybody can answer it. He pointed to where the telephone rested in open view on a desk. Did the fake Bertona answer it? Hartson Brandt replied. I'm positive he didn't. Neither Kepner nor I were more than a few feet from him all the time he was here. Steve nodded. My point is this. Goss had convinced all of you that he was the real Bertona. He would have had no reason to leave the lab. Think of how many obstructions he could have put in your way had he hung around for a day or two. He respected his opinions. He could have sabotaged you neatly. That is true, except for one consideration, Hartson Brandt said. The moment you came into the lab, the jig would have been up. We would have known that he never contacted you, and our suspicions would have been aroused. Steve smiled without mirth. He thought of everything. Just a short while ago, I got a hurried call from one of my men in New York. A whispering box had been found up there. I'm certain that one of the gang planted it, 
knowing I was in such a stain over this business that I would hurry right to the spot and investigate it myself. The only reason I'm not flying to New York right now is because of your call, Mr. Brandt, after Rick phoned. You guys caught me just as I was packing my bag. Scotty whistled. Wow, that's being thorough. Right, but they couldn't be that thorough all through this case without inside information, which gets us back to where we were. My theory is that Goss suddenly beat it because he had been tipped off. From Rick's story, Nails or Joe got to a nearby phone. They probably knew that there was one close to the house. You say Goss never answered the phone here in the lab? Who did? Kepner started suddenly. I know. I remember now. The phone rang while Hartson, Goss, Terhoud, and I were at the drawing board. I heard Fanning say something about this being the wrong number. A few minutes later, Goss hurried away. Fanning? Rick turned in time to see the assistant rush for the door. He jumped to his feet, as did the others. But Steve only grinned and waved his hand. Come on back, he called. You won't get far. Fanning jerked the door open, then stopped short. He turned back, his face white. One of Steve's guards, with a pistol in his hand, stepped into the room behind him. You can't prove anything, Fanning said. You'll never make the charges stick. We'll see, Steve told him. There's no time to bother with you now, though, Fanning. I'll see you in your cell tomorrow sometime. Pete, take him in. The others watched in silence as Fanning was taken away. Rick remembered how he had turned the sound machine on them and had made them dance. It had seemed like a joke at the time. Now he wasn't so sure. Maybe Fanning had been really trying to get them out of the way. No wonder the gang had been so well informed. I'm completely astounded, Kempner said. Fanning? It never even occurred to me that he might... It didn't occur to me either, Steve said grimly. And I'm a lot more suspicious by nature than you are. But you see what we're up against. Fanning's record was thoroughly checked. There has never been a word against him nor has he ever been connected with any questionable groups. We'll find that it was strictly money that turned him a traitor. His manner changed abruptly. He smiled as Rick hadn't seen him smile in days. Anyway, we're making real progress. Let's review the situation. Add it up, it comes to this. Goss knows where we stand on the counterweapon. He also knows that with Bertona, Weiss, and Zircon at work, the time limit is shortened, and he intimated to Rick that he would make one more try before getting out of the country. Steve's smile widened, and I know where he's going to make his try. Rick's jaw dropped. His respect for Steve, always high, had gone up like a stratospheric rocket plane at the young agent's discovery of the traitor's identity by his quick analysis of the situation. But if Steve had found out where the gang would strike next... I had a hunch, Steve told them. I took the plan for a project now being worked on by one of our civilian agencies, added a few frills with the help of Dr. Kempner, so that it added up to the most important industrial secret since the discovery of the atomic bomb. Kempner gasped. But Steve, when you consulted with me, I told you such a project wouldn't work. We won't have the technical knowledge for it for at least ten years. Goss doesn't know that, Steve said, grinning. 
I carried a brief summary of the project around in my pocket for a week. I let it get lost everywhere we had people who knew anything about this case. But I always remembered to look for it before the finder had a chance to more than glance at it. I remember that Fanning had just finished refolding it when I came back into the lab hunting for it. You can bet he relayed all that dope in the paper to Goss. Scotty shook his head in admiration. So the gang will try to get this secret. That's what I hope. The idea is sound, but as Dr. Kempner says, we haven't the technical know-how to carry it out at present. Goss can't know that, however, because he can't possibly know about every project that is being worked on. For all he knows, the technical knowledge may very well exist. That's pretty smart, Rick said admiringly. But suppose he strikes and the counterweapon isn't ready. It will be. It has to be. How about it? Hartz and Brandt looked at his associates. Well, we have Weiss, Zircon, and Bertona with us now. You'll have a counterweapon when you want it. A little shiver of excitement made Rick tremble. He asked, When do you want it? Steve sobered. If my guess is any good, you had better finish it within 48 hours, or we might as well not finish it at all. Chapter 19. The Frantic Hours Rick sipped at a steaming cup of chocolate and watched the group at the other side of the laboratory. Next to him, Scotty was stretched out on the lab couch, dead to the world. The group consisted of Hartson Brandt, Kepner, Weiss, Zircon, Bertona, and Terhune. The lab table had been pressed into service as an extra desk, and the scientists had grouped around it. That had been last night. Much of the preliminary work had been done by Mr. Brandt and Dr. Kempner already, leaving only the major difficulties to be tackled. The scientists had plunged right into the heart of the problem. Rick, sleeping intermittently in an armchair or on the couch with Scotty, had heard only portions of the all-night debate. There had been periods of heated argument, during which the scientists covered sheets of paper with equations and calculations. There had been other periods of silence when all of them were sketching wiring diagrams. Zircon, Weiss, and Bertona had been in confinement, but at least they had had the opportunity to sleep. Kepner and Hartson Brandt had spent sleepless nights on the problem and were almost worn out. Zircon's leg bothered him, and he was forced to remain seated. Bertona's burns must have been troubling him, but he gave no sign. Rick enjoyed his chocolate, made in the lab hot plate, and thought that they looked unlike any group of scientists he had ever seen in pictures. All of them were in need of a shave. Their collars were open, and their clothing was wrinkled. Scotty turned over on the couch, then his eyes opened, and he was suddenly awake. Unlike Rick, who always took a little time to get fully awake, Scotty could snap from deep sleep to alert awakening instantly. Now he swung his feet to the floor and sniffed at the cup that Rick held. Any more of that? In the pan. Help yourself. And Scotty did so. He sat down on the couch and tasted it. Hey, that's pretty good. How are things coming, anyway? Rick shrugged. I don't know. I lost track sometime last night. I went over there a while ago, and I couldn't make any sense out of the diagrams. Why do you think Steve set 48 hours as the limit? I asked him. I couldn't hear very well because you were snoring, but he told me. Never mind remarks about my deep, regular breathing, Scotty retorted. 
What did he say? Rick summed up briefly what Stephen said. Goss knows we'll put everything we have into the weapon now, and he knows that with all the scientists working on it, it won't take very long. So he'll strike right away. Whether he gets what he's after or not, it'll be his last try. He's too smart to take any big chances. The house burned down, and probably a lot of his stuff with it. By the time he gets organized, even rushing things, about two days will have passed. At the end of the two days, he'll make a try for that phony secret that Steve planted. That was really smart, Scotty said thoughtfully. But suppose he doesn't fall for it. Well, then we're sunk. Steve figures on planting the counterweapon at the place where the phony secret is located. If Goss strikes somewhere else, we're licked. I'll keep my fingers crossed, Scotty promised. Where'd Gizmo go? Home to sleep. I told him we wouldn't be leaving the lab for a long time. That's a good guess. Scotty tilted his cup and swallowed the hot chocolate, then got up and wandered over to where the scientists were in deep conversation. Rick finished his chocolate in a more leisurely fashion and then joined him. We agree on every point, then, Hartson Brandt said wearily. Except on the method of energizing the automatic control. Let's put that aside for the moment. Give me your opinions on whether we're safe enough in our figures to proceed with actual construction. Yes, Zircon boomed. I believe we are, Weiss said. Terhun, the draftsman, looked at the scattered papers on the table. These drawings aren't in very good shape, he said doubtfully. They are not pretty drawings, yes, Kepner agreed, but they can be used. Hartson, what do you suggest? Rick had picked up the thread of the conversation. Now he waited anxiously for his father's reply. An affirmative would plunge them into a whirl of activity that would end only when the counter-weapon was functioning. Scotty, too, had his eyes riveted on the spindrift leader. Hartson Brandt looked at his associates soberly for a moment and then smiled. Let's go to it, he said. It was a battle cry. Weariness dropped away from the group at the table. Zircon rose to his feet, hobbled over, and clapped Rick soundly on the back. You and Scotty stick with me, Rick. We're working together. Where's your bench? Rick pointed to the other side of the lab. Over there, sir. Zircon scooped up the papers that had been on the table before him. They were covered with diagrams and equations. We're on our way, he bellowed. Hartson, get some sleep. You too, Kepner. It'll be hours before we're ready for further discussion. Rick and Scotty hurried with the big scientist to their workbench. While Zircon sorted his papers, Rick plugged in soldering irons and rigged up the testing set with which the bench was equipped. Scotty opened drawers and laid out an assortment of tools. Then he went to the stockpile across the room and picked out several sheets of aluminum. Rick hunted the lab until he found a high stool. He placed it for Zircon to sit on. The scientist nodded thanks and sat down, holding a sheet of paper. All right. Here's the first step. Scotty, cut and shape a chassis from that aluminum. You'll find the dimensions on that top piece of paper. Rick, get these parts from stock. He handed him a list. Rick glanced at his watch. It was just half past six in the morning. It was afternoon before he had a chance even to look at his watch again and then only because it was necessary to take time to eat. He munched on a sandwich and gulped steaming coffee. Meanwhile, 
rechecking the almost complete circuit in the base of the aluminum chassis Scotty had built. Zircon was working on a problem while eating his lunch. Scotty cleaned up the bench between bites. At another bench, Weiss and Bertona were at work on a delicate piece of equipment that used tiny acorn tubes and printed silver wire. Hartson, Brandt, and Kepner, little refreshed after a morning's sleep, were at the drawing board with Trehoon. Rick was groggy. He had concentrated over the circuit, intent on following orders to the letter. He didn't even know what they were doing, because Zircon was too busy to explain. He did as he was told, and the work progressed rapidly. From raw metal and assorted parts, they had built up what looked like one section of a radio set. But no radio set had ever had such a peculiar combination of tubes and controls. Zircon swallowed the last of his lunch. Hurry up, guys. There's still a lot to do on this part, and we have another complete stage to build up. Rick down the last of his coffee. What are we waiting for? Scotty demanded. Rick worked automatically, following Zircon's directions like a machine. Next to him, Scotty operated an electric drill, fixing a panel on which instruments would be mounted. Zircon's huge fingers, skilled as a surgeon's, worked right next to Rick's in the growing mass of wires. Time passed and the intricate job progressed. The smell of hot metal and scorched insulation made Rick cough. He realized that his throat was raw and that he badly needed a drink. He took a moment while Zircon was examining a circuit diagram and hurried to the front of the lab. As he drank a glass of water, he noted that a fourth person had joined Hartson Brandt, Dr. Kempner, and Terhune. It was Steve Ames. Rick heard his father say, You're asking for the impossible. I know it, Steve returned gloomily. Rick hurried over. What is it? Hartson Brandt looked wearily at his son. Steve wants us to finish by tomorrow morning. But why? Because Goss and his gang are together again, and I think they're ready to strike. They were spotted all together in a stolen car by a Maryland State Police cruiser. The cruiser recognized it as a stolen car and chased it, not suspecting the gang was inside. The officers in the cruiser had just enough time to get a good look before the whispering box hit them. They ran off the road and smacked into a tree. They're both in the hospital. I talked with them half an hour ago. Their descriptions of the men in the car fit the ones we put out on the teletype circuits. It's Goss and company, all right. Why do you think they're ready to strike? I'm assuming it. When I said 48 hours last night, I knew it was a generous estimate. Now that we know the gang is reassembled, I'm sure of it. According to my calculations, they may strike between 11.30 and 11.45 tomorrow morning. Rick looked at his watch. It was almost seven in the evening. How can you fix the time like that? he persisted. Steve shrugged. I'm guessing, but that's the time I would choose. The employees in the building go to lunch at noon. They start to get ready for lunch at 11.45 by cleaning up their desks and wandering around to find someone to eat with, things like that. Now, people who come into the building on business usually come before 11.30. After that, since lunch is so close, they haven't got much time to transact their business. If the gang strikes at any time between 11.30 and 11.45, they miss the noon rush of employees. They also miss 
the morning visitors, most of whom have gone by that time. Also, if they get away by 11.45, they can miss the noon traffic. But why not just strike before closing time? Rick asked. They could do that too, Steve admitted. The same thing would apply, only I think we'd better be ready for the morning, just in case. No matter, Hartzenbrand said. We're wasting time by talking, Steve. If it's humanly possible, you'll have your counter-weapon in time. Chapter 20 Screaming Susie Dawnlight filtered through the drawn blinds of the laboratory, but no one noticed. Their attention was focused on the apparatus on the lab table. Rick eyed the thing doubtfully. The individual parts had worked when tested, but he couldn't believe that it would actually function to neutralize the whispering box. Check from stage to stage, Harson Brandt requested. Weiss plugged his testing device into his socket. Zircon finished making a connection and then motioned to Rick, who plugged the power cable into another wall socket. The counterweapon was made up of four separate units, or stages, mounted in a frame. The bottom unit was the power supply. The next unit was the section that analyzed the frequency of the whispering box. It had a built-in microphone of a special type, borrowed from the United States Bureau of Standards to pick up the sound. The third unit was the complex control that selected the proper counterfrequency. The top section, revised during the night by Kempner and Hartson Brandt, was the silent sound apparatus they had built previously, with the help of Fanning. A quick examination had shown that the traitor had not sabotaged the unit. He had probably realized that any attempt to ruin it would immediately point him out as the gang's informant. Weiss got busy with his testing, going from unit to unit. The others watched in silence. At last, he turned to the watching group. All the circuits are functioning properly. Let's try it then, Steve Ames said impatiently. In a moment, Hartson Brandt moved to the front of the apparatus and began adjusting the controls. Rick watched as he checked the power supply to be sure the proper voltages were reaching the other units. Then he set the sensitive volume control for the detector stage hesitating over the adjustment. I'd better turn it down for this test, he said. When we install it for use against the Whispering Box Gang, we'll open it wide so it can pick up sound from the box at a considerable distance. The scientist finished his adjustments and stood up. I think we can test it now, he said. Scotty swallowed. What happens if it doesn't work? In that case... Zircon boomed. We'll all be stretched out on the floor for a while, like so many codfish dumped on a pier. Weiss chuckled dryly. We have a certain degree of confidence in our handiwork, Rick. Get the whispering box. It looked deceptively innocent sitting on the lab desk. The horn on the front, which Bertona had diagnosed as a directional device, might have been the lens shade of a simple camera. The handle on the top with a push button at its front end, might have been just a carrying handle with a shutter release at its end. Rick picked it up, careful to keep his thumb away from the handy button. Kepner took it from him and brushed the last speck of Scotty's mud out of the horn. At the back of the box was a little opening, like a hinged door. Kepner opened it, disclosing a chamber that held two carbon dioxide cartridges, the kind used to charge home seltzer bottles. 
When the trigger button was pressed, a cartridge was punctured, releasing the compressed gas. The box could be fired twice and reloaded quickly. Rick wondered how many of them had been made. He knew of two. There were probably others. Who fires the shot? Scotty asked. Terhune, the draftsman who had limited his conversation to mere greetings until now, spoke up. Why not one of the two it has been used on the most? Rick or Scotty? Good idea, Zircon approved. Let them match for it, Steve Ames suggested. No, Rick said quickly. Scotty should turn it on. He's the one who got it away from nails. Weiss agreed with Rick. He took the box from Kepner and handed it to Scotty. The boy accepted the weapon a little gingerly. There was some doubt in his eyes as he looked at the counter weapon, gleaming in its unpainted aluminum case. Are you sure it's going to work? We'll know soon enough, Harson Brandt said, smiling. Go ahead, Scotty. Here goes nothing, Scotty said, and pointed the horn at the counter weapon. His face tightened as though he were trying to stop up his ears by sheer willpower. His hand tightened on the grip, and his thumb found the button, and he fired the whispering box. Rick never forgot the result. He didn't hear the shrill voice of the whispering box. The whisper was drowned out by the most awful scream he had ever experienced. He didn't exactly hear it. It was much too loud for that. He felt it, as though every bone in his skull were vibrating like a drumhead. He vowed later that his entire spine had thrummed like a tuning fork. It was only for a handful of seconds, and then the scream ran down like a failing phonograph and was silent. Kepner spoke first, his voice sounding a little faint, because Rick had been slightly deafened by the blast. Loud, he said with fine scientific detachment. Loud, but quite harmless. There was a mass sigh of relief. As Hartson Brandt had said, when the theory of a counterweapon was first described to Rick, the counterfrequency had nullified the whispering box, beating against the wave from the box and producing an audible sound that was the mathematical difference between the box frequency and that emitted by the counterweapon. Steve Ames patted the gleaming aluminum, his face one big smile. If this thing only had a fresh coat of paint, he proclaimed feelingly, Doggone it if I wouldn't consider marrying it. That's our girl, Scotty said. Screaming Susie. The name stuck. From then on, the counter weapon was Screaming Susie. The fatiguing hours were over. Steve Ames took the responsibility at this point. Let's get moving, he said. He waved at Pete Davis, who had come in to investigate the noise. Get a couple of men, Pete. Bring the station wagon around, too. To the scientists, he said, Now we have to connect up this thing. A simple matter, Hartson Brandt said. We can install it in a few moments. And then we can all go to bed, except for Steve and his men, Kepner said with relief. Rick and Scotty exchanged glances. Rick knew his thought was in Scotty's mind. Go to bed now? With a whispering box gang? Might meet screaming Susie this very day? Not on your life. Susie wasn't large, but because of her content of transformers and other equipment, she was heavy. Pete Davis and three others carried her with the tender caution 
they might have used in transferring a wounded comrade to a hospital bed. They took her down to the waiting station wagon and tucked her inside with loving care. Hartson Brandt said, It'll only take one of us to install and make adjustments. I'll go along and the rest of you can go to bed. The chorus of protests ended with all of them piling into the station wagon and Steve's car. The two-car caravan sped through the wakening streets of the city. Rick had no idea where they were going. He had forgotten to ask Steve. In a short time, however, they drew up before a brick dwelling. He looked at it in surprise, then reflected that he shouldn't be surprised at anything that might happen. Still, one of the modern government buildings nearby would have seemed a more likely place. Steve led the way into the house, down to the cellar, and through a wooden door into a brick passageway. He called back over his shoulder. This passage is with the compliments of the man who was undersecretary of the Treasury in President Buchanan's time. He had it cut so he could go from his home to his office without getting rained on. The city has a lot of places like this. It's one of the reasons I chose this building for a trap. They followed the passage for what seemed 500 yards, but was probably less. There were electric lights strung along the way on a single pair of wires. At the end of the passage, Steve took them through an opening in a cement block wall. Rick looked around him as they stepped into an enormous modern basement. Then they were hurrying up a flight of stairs, through a door, down a long corridor, and presently to the front of a modern governmental office building. Here we are, Steve said. I brought you the long way round in case any of our friends from the Whispering Box Gang have an eye on this building. Now where do we install it? It mustn't be in plain sight. After a few moments' discussion, a place was decided upon. In one corner of the building lobby was a booth set up for the sale of government publications. It was a temporary structure of board shelves covered with the brown, heavy, but loosely woven fabric called monk's cloth. The fabric was draped down to the floor to conceal the unpainted wood. During office hours, the counters would display the various publications of the government printing office. Now it was bare. Screaming Susie was placed on the floor, directly behind the front counter drape. The fabric wouldn't impede the ultrasonic wave, she admitted, and it would conceal her effectively. In a short time, a wall plug had been found, an extension run, and current supplied to Susie. Hartson Brandt retuned her, turning the control of the hidden microphone open wide. Now let the whispering box whisper. If it came close enough for Susie to hear, she would drown it out with one loud blast. The scientist made a final check. Now, Hartson Brandt said wearily, who's in favor of getting some sleep? Rick had expected to make himself comfortable to wait until the whispering box gang arrived. He looked at his father surprised. Didn't you want to be in on the finish at this? Hartson Brandt smiled. There is still time for a few hours sleep before Goss and his friends appear, Rick. Unless Steve has guessed wrong. It's a good bet, Steve said. If anything does happen, I'll call you right away. Scotty looked at Rick doubtfully, as though asking for a cue. Should they go to the hotel for a nap or remain? It was Rick's heavy eyelids that decided him. We'll go with the rest, Scotty. Okay. 
The quickness with which Scotty agreed was a testament to how tired he was. They went back the way they had come, to the waiting cars one street away from the entrance. The time would pass rapidly. Before long, the hour would come when screaming Susie would have to show her worth under fire. <laughs>